Hello and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg and with me is managing editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy folks. Today we'll be talking about Christopher Nolan's Inception. We put it to a vote about what movie should we discuss. The parameters were basically what are popular movies that are on Netflix right now? Movies that have a following, that have something to discuss, and that are also easily accessible by our viewership. And you voted for, there were four titles in, in contention, and y'all chose Inception. So the film turns 10 years old this year. And I will say off of that, we're not going to get too deep in the weeds on Nolan, um, simply because Tenet will come out. I'm not optimistic it will come out on July 17th, as currently scheduled, but I do think it'll probably come out this year. I would say maybe December. Um, in any event, when Tenet does come out, that'll be our big Christopher Nolan podcast where we talk about all of his movies and really go deep on that. So for this, we're really going to kind of focus more on Inception and what it says about Christopher Nolan and kind of where he was at in his career at the time Inception came out. So in 2008, The Dark Knight comes out and just is a massive sensation at changed the way Oscar nominating worked because it was, it didn't get a best picture nomination and people were very upset about that. So they're like, it deserves, you know, we need to change how this is done. So they expanded that category. It did win an Oscar posthumously for Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker. It was a huge box office sensation, obviously. And then, so coming off this, obviously Warner brothers is like, we need Christopher Nolan to do a dark Knight sequel. And Christopher Nolan's like, I want to do something else first. <laughs> And Warner Brothers, which is, there's no one that, like, Warner Brothers is already a very loyal studio. You can kind of see that in the filmmakers they choose to work with again and again. Uh, they like, they have a certain stable that they like working with, and they tend to give those filmmakers a lot of power and a lot of influence, uh, sometimes to great effect and sometimes to the studio's detriment. But they love Christopher Nolan. Do you, how much do they love Christopher Nolan? Here's a little inside baseball. Every time we refer to uh, Dunkirk by the wrong genre, a publicist would inev inevitably call us at our homes and be like, no, 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 please refer to Dunkirk as this genre. <laughs> That's the level of specificity they want in talking about their Christopher Nolan movies. Interstellar is like a World War II thriller. That's what they wanted. Yes, not a drama. Don't call yeah. it a drama. <laughs> Interstellar, Wonder Brothers paid money to be, because the, the project was set up at Paramount with Steven Spielberg and then Christopher Nolan took it over and Wonder Brothers was like, we will pay money to be a part of this because that's how much we want to be in the Christopher Nolan business all the time. So they love him and they're like, all right, what do you want to do as your next pro project, Chris? And he's like, I want to do a heist that takes place in people's dreams. <laughs> I'm going to need well north of $100 million to do it. <laughs> and they gave it to him. And it paid off. I mean, I think, to, for me, the thing that still stands out about Inception is that no one else gets to make Inception these days. No one. Not even Spielberg. No one gets to make a film that costs almost $200 million dollars and is a premise that is not easily explained and isn't based on an IP, an original blockbuster idea. That just doesn't happen anymore. But Christopher Nolan is like the only guy right now that can get away with that. And, that, and I, I think it paid off. I think Inception's a great film. Um, I'm just still, even 10 years later, kind of in awe that it even exists. 
I didn't watch Inception this week. I watched Hot Rod because you guys didn't vote for Hot Rod, but I want to talk about Hot Rod. <laughs> cool, cool beans. beans. Cool beans. Cool, cool, cool beans. <laughs> uh no hot rod is amazing and uh i would like to discuss it but um yeah it is it's fascinating kind of reading up a little bit about this we're all in this headspace now where christopher nolan is as you said one of the few filmmakers who gets to do whatever he wants these days um but at that time he wasn't yet uh you know he had made memento which got an oscar nomination and and gained some acclaim he made insomnia which he very purposely made as a um essentially a test reel to like show studios I can handle studio filmmaking. Batman Begins worked. Um, you know, the prestige was solid, but not like insanely expensive. And then the Dark Knight changed everything, as you said. Um, and so at the time, Warner Brothers really was making a gamble. Like they were risking a lot of money on this original idea. Um, I was also kind of tickled to read that like, at the time, Christopher Nolan was so high on his Inception script that he sent it to, I think, Brad Pitt and only gave him 48 hours to decide if he wanted to do it or not. <laughs> And Brad Pitt was like, I'm not reading this yet. And so they moved on to Will Smith, gave him the same kind of deal. Will Smith either passed or didn't read it in time. And then that's how they went to Leo and got Leo, Um, which, you know, to be fair, Nolan was coming off this acclaim from The Dark Knight and and everyone saying that, you know, I think he got a DGA nomination. Everyone's saying he should have gotten an Oscar nomination for Best Director. Um, So he was, you know, a a person of some renown. But this was, uh, you know, a bit of a... I think if I remember correctly, I forgot to look this up. The in the original script, it was Cobb's partner who was uh, kind of haunting him through these things, and DiCaprio was the one who uh, was like, "Maybe we should put some emotion in this movie <laughs> and make it his dead wife um, instead." But yeah, it's you know, it's this really massive original idea done with practical effects and. Again, I remember at the time the kind of the press surrounding it was that it was this huge gamble and it it paid off. It it made just a ton of money and got, you know, uh, best picture nomination, won a couple Oscars, I think it won for cinematography. But like eight hundred and thirty million dollars for an original idea is pretty insane, even for twenty ten. Well, and I remember like the genesis of this project in terms of like reporting on it at the time. Like we were all like, what is Christopher Nolan gonna do next if he's not doing a Batman sequel next? What is this movie Inception? And every time a piece of like casting came out, like there would be no details on the cast or like, like in terms of like the role they were playing, but we had to use the, and the only log line was a thriller that takes place inside the architecture of the mind. (laughs) Then you see the movie, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. Imagine reading that, (laughs) you know what Inception is. And you're just like, what are you even talking about? What does this even mean? Yes. Um, and so he made a film about, you know, he, he made a heist thriller that takes place in dream levels. And one of the things I really appreciate about Inception that some people don't really care for is that some people feel it's not dreamlike enough. And my feeling is, is that Christopher Nolan used certain aspects of dreams, but he didn't want to go full surrealism. Uh, he didn't want to use, it's not a film that uses dream logic. It's not like Darren Aronofsky's mother, which is full dream logic. Like, something pops up and it takes you to the next thing as you move just sort of flowing with, with these ideas instead coming from Christopher Nolan, dreams are very structured and very organized to the point where they have, can have architects. And I think it's fine. I think in terms of like the dream world that Christopher Nolan is creating, I think that's fine. I think that's, that's a fair thing to do in terms of like, I want the subconscious to function like this. I want, 
there to be dreams within dreams. And then I also want, you know, certain aspects of the subconscious to, to behave like this. I wanted an action film, but I don't want our, our heroes to be mass murderers. So when they shoot people, they're just projections. You know, I think, it, it, I think the, the world building that Inception does is, is very uh, captivating and, and unique. And I really like it, even if I will admit it is not dreamlike in the way that we normally understand dreams. Yeah, but I like that, and I remember reading interviews with Nolan where he, like, this was very much based on his own experiences with dreams, and this is a project that he had been working on for a long time. Um, I think he had notebooks going back to when he was making Memento, where he was um, noodling around with the idea of setting a um, a film within, within dreams, but, like, I think it's just, personally for him, his dreams are not at that surreal, and uh, my dreams are kind of similar. I, you know, kind of a, like a Dali painting is not necessarily what I dream about at night. Um, it's a little bit more realistic. So I like the idea of, of and they say it in the film, of, um, you know, things being off, but you don't know they're off until you wake up. Mm -hmm. So if you are witnessing this, uh, if you're witnessing them inside the mind, then things wouldn't necessarily seem that off to them while they're in there. Right. While you're dreaming, it doesn't seem that strange. Again, I think the it is a very tightly constructed world that Nolan is going into. There's no sort of, again, surrealism, which is fine. I mean, that's how it is. It's also very Nolan in how entirely sexless it is. Um, <laughs> other than Spielberg, Nolan might be the most sexless blockbuster filmmaker of all time, which is why I get so amused when it's like, Christopher Nolan should do a, a James Bond movie. And I'm like, that would be the first James Bond movie where James Bond does not have sex. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Or if they had sex, it's like, we are having sex now. This is cool <laughs> intercourse. As Hans Zimmer goes, brah, brah. <laughs> exactly. No, we, we, wanted, we wanted to imagine the sex scene through a soundscape. So, but Hans <laughs> it. Uh, I would watch that movie. Now, yeah, so if you by the way, if you're if you're interested in what our Nolan podcast will be like, it's oh, just be this. It'll just be us clowning on Christopher Nolan. Just not. Or. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, the film holds up. I mean, at the time, it, it was this huge deal and everyone was like, oh, my God, Inception. And oh, oh, man, like Inception will blow your mind. And it's so confusing and it's so crazy. Um, I think it still holds up just on a pure entertainment level. Like it's super um, engaging and compelling. And it does, you know, ask you to think a bit more critically than normal. But I don't necessarily think it's like insanely confusing. No, no. I mean, if you there, there are films like that are very much confusing films, films that like toy with your sense of when is this happening? Like primer is a confusing film. <laughs> I've watched primer four or five times. Cannot tell you what happened. I tried, I tried diagramming it. I tried writing it. I couldn't do it. Primer just is, is a chore. I think um, diagramming primer is how you open the space time continuum. Exactly. If you do it correctly. <laughs> if you diagram primer, you actually will go back in time. Um, but the idea with like Inception is actually, I think Nolan makes it very clear, like this is dream level one, this is dream level two, this is dream level three. I'm gonna keep like the, the editing in the in Inception is masterful because he's using different dream levels to also signify the passage of time. So for instance, when the van goes over the side of the bridge, that becomes your countdown timer. And we'll keep cutting back to the van slowly coming towards the water because that's the countdown timer. But it's such an ingenious way of depicting that. 
but it's within the rules that Nolan has established. I, I never, I've seen, I mean, I've never felt lost watching Inception. I've never felt like, oh, I don't know what's going on anymore or what the characters are doing or what they want or who's, who's doing what. It always makes sense every time. I will say on the upon this rewatch, the one aspect that is a little confusing is the logic that gets Saito to like that extra limbo mm. or like where Cobb ends up at the beginning of the opening of the film where Cobb washes up on the shore and Saito is an old man. How is that limbo different from the limbo that they were in and where is it? <laughs> so basically my understanding of that is that when they were in their own like dream space, like their own dream space, they were still in control. Like they could build anything, but they would they didn't fall into it. They purposely went went there and like lived for years and years and years. They just chose to go that deep. Yeah. But they were always in control. Whereas within uh well, the reason Saito fell into a deeper limbo is because this was not in their control. Ultimately, these are all in the minds of, of Killian Murphy. These are all like his dream levels that are being constructed. So because Saito doesn't have that level of control, he's now stuck. I mean, it's all a shared dream, but because they weren't prepared for like bullets can kill you, you know, in this world, then, you know, it, it changed the calculus essentially. I still don't understand. Okay. <laughs> How does Saito get, I get the, I mean, the, so like the basic like plot narrative structure and like character motivations make sense to me, but I don't know. Do you want to turn this podcast into Matt explains Inception? Do you want to keep going? I, I mean, can... I've heard the theory. I've heard the theory, especially when it first came out. The whole movie is a dream. The whole movie is cop's yeah. dream. I don't know if I buy that entirely yeah. because I think it renders the stakes to be kind of cheap. And also like, oh, Cobb is just stuck in a limbo of his choosing for the rest of all time, but it's okay because he's with his family again. The part, I, I think if if Nolan wanted to say this is all Cobb's dream, he wouldn't include scenes that happen independently of Cobb. Yeah. What we know watching this film is that the dreamer has to be su involved in their own dream. That's the logic that this film has established so that the dreamer is interacting and understands their own place and time. But Inception has scenes like when... Um, Ariadne and um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, like when they're talking about rules of dreams, like Cobb is not present in that. Like, yeah. or when Ariadne is talking with uh, Michael Caine, you know, Cobb is not present in that. So for the whole film to be just Cobb's dream is also is kind of unsatisfying beyond like he finally comes to peace with his loss. Um, I think the film works on a better level of you know, he, it's somewhat him coming to, to, to peace, coming to terms with, um, with what he is wanting, which is to be reunited with his family. And I guess, and I guess, yes, that does go to like, does the top fall over or does it not? It doesn't matter because Cobb has gotten what he wanted. But I also just feel like if the whole film is a dream, that kind of undermines the dream structure that is presented throughout. Well, and I also think that's kind of, uh, not to dredge Joker into this, but um, like the ambiguity in Joker of like, is he Joker or isn't he, or did anything actually happen or did it not? And Todd Phillips and Joaquin Phoenix saying like, who's to say uh, the ambiguity in inception, does the top fall over? Or does it not feels pointed like it did that ambiguity 
makes emotional sense because it doesn't matter if the top falls over or not. Cobb's not looking at it anymore. Right. Exactly. Ambiguity forms, informs character rather than audiences like choose your own ending. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not the top isn't spinning to say, like, who's to say if any of this actually happened? The top is still spinning to say, look at Cobb. He's not even looking at the top anymore. Like he doesn't care. Right, exactly. Whereas the whole film, he's been obsessed with that because he can't, to him, he is drawing himself in contrast to Mal. Whereas Mal lost touch with her own reality, now Cobb worries he's in the same place where he can't tell the difference anymore. And so at the end, he has learned that what's real is not what a spinning top tells him. What's real is he can see his children's faces again and that he's with them, that the mission is completed, that you know, even if this is a dream, it has reached its endpoint. Yeah, yeah, and I think that makes a lot more sense. Um, although I still felt, I don't know, I'd, I've never felt super emotionally invested in Inception. Um, and I think that's okay. Like, I think Leonardo DiCaprio does the best that he can. And I think it's it's solid. Um, like, it's sad. But um, even upon rewatch, it, it's still a film that leaves me a little bit cold. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of, I feel like the craftsmanship does enough heavy lifting in this yeah. film that I'm emotionally invested. And I also feel like it's it's one of the rare Nolan films where like the humor works. It's a, it's knows when, the jokes land mm-hmm. in Inception. Um, but I would, feel, I feel like, I agree. I think, I think it is emotional enough. Could it be more, have more of an emotional impact? Yes, but it's not like, to me, a film that kind of fails on its emotional merits is Interstellar. That film needs to work on an emotional level, and it is too cold and calculating for the emotional beats to really land, which is how you get, like, Anne Hathaway explaining how love works to Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> like, the fact that one character has to be like, you love people even after they die. That's not logical. And I'm like, okay, yeah, we know. <laughs> it's weird that you're, you're saying it. There is one scene in Interstellar that gets me, but we'll talk it, about Interstellar. I think I know the scene that you're talking about. But yeah. to, 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 to rag on Interstellar a little more, <laughs> he sees his child all the way. Like, he finally reunites with her, and he's like, you know what? You guys got a lot going on. I'm going to peace out. I don't want I, I don't want to overstay my welcome with my long-lost daughter. That is my biggest gripe with Interstellar. Uh, ask her it. Um, is is that is the entire film is he wants to be reunited with his daughter and he's with her for five minutes. And he was like, you know what? You got your own family now. I'm going to head back out. Anne Hathaway all right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Go over to this space rock with Anne Hathaway. Who, you know, I kind of know, I guess, but you know, <laughs> enjoy your life in the yeah. void. Yeah. That's, that's when I was like, what the, it wasn't the emotional core of this movie. He wanted to be reunited with his daughter. Um, I'm sure people are like, (laughs) you can see the tune out dials going down, down, down. Um, But there is stuff that I like in that film. And there is one particular scene that uh, I find very emotionally effective. Um, But, but yeah, when it comes to Inception, I I do think, I think the craft overwhelms and even watching it now, like that's a film that's built to last. Like it holds up because so much of the, the effects work is practical. Yeah. Uh, and miniatures, like God, like I, I wish people still used miniatures because, you know, uh, and and we're fans of a lot of the Marvel movies, but you can only see so many CGI buildings explode where you're just like, okay, yeah, like it's a big computer explosion 
I get it. It's cool, I guess. It's just animation. But there's something tactile about watching that building fall down at the end of Inception The um, uh, in the uh, On Her Majesty's Secret Service world. Right. Um, the, the compound uh, that falls down. Uh, it, obviously, in Limbo, those are CG buildings. But I'm talking about like the actual practical effects. I think they're just stunning. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean that that hallway fight yeah. is is lasting because they shot it on an actual rotating hallway. Like that, yeah. they built a set, they built it to rotate. They wired up Joseph Gordon-Levitt and the stunt actors and had them fight, and then like kind of moved the camera one way and the hallway another, and mm-hmm. like. That's how you get that dizzying kind of effect of this kind of zero gravity fight. Yeah, it's not just two guys standing in front of a green screen with a fan blowing at them and just going, rah. Right. Rah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure our audio listeners loved uh, that part. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, by the way, our audio listeners, we're on YouTube now if you want to look at our faces. <laughs> I don't know why you would, but it's there. <laughs> yeah. We exist on on the YouTube now, um, but yeah, I think that part of it again it's built to last. It, it holds up uh, really well just on a base thriller level. And then to your point about the editing, like the tension, like as soon as they get in that dream, uh, I think the script is so smart. Like immediately it's raining, so immediately something has gone wrong. So there's there's something in you that says this is different. Like this this is not going according to plan, and things continue to go off the rails from there. And I think that that's what makes it um, a lot of fun and makes you really tense. I remember my initial viewing, like I felt like I didn't breathe for that final, what, 45 minutes, hour, probably more than that. I remember in my first viewing, I was so kind of just on board with how different it was and what it was doing that there was a real change. And in the real change in this first viewing, uh, the, the real had been put in wrong so the can the the images were upside down, and for the first <laughs> few seconds we're like, all right, let's see what Nolan's doing. With this. Ah, it's upside down. I see. What what does that mean? And then they're like, no, no, we fucked this up, and we have to it'll take forty five minutes for us to get this playing correctly. Uh, um, so yeah, it was it was quite a ride. Yeah. Um, what is uh, what are your thoughts on the read that the film is a an entire metaphor for filmmaking? I think that's dead on. <laughs> I think it's like, I think it's, I think that's in fact the best way to view the film is it's a movie about movie making, which is, you know, what is a movie except a shared dream? It's the, the, the dream of the filmmaker, but as a, I mean, as an audience, it's what you put into it, what you bring into it, what you view. And then, so this notion of, you know, Cobb is the director who, by the way, happens to look like Christopher Nolan <laughs> <laughs> with his little with his little slick black back blonde hair. Um, and then Ariane's production design. Arthur's the producer. Uh, Tom Hardy's the actor. Uh, Saito's the producer uh, um, is uh, the financier, the studio, essentially. Um, and uh, who else is there? You know, basically, you know, everyone has their role to play to make this movie happen. I read it as Ariadne was the writer because she's the one who's so intimately involved oh, yeah. with she's, Cobb. Yeah, I guess so. I, I, she could also be the writer. I always say production design because she's the architect. She's the one yeah. designing the levels. So but she's writing the story and she's the one who's telling the director, like, you don't have to tell everyone else this, but you have to tell me so I can right. understand it. That's so fair. Yeah, I think that's a stronger read on it. Um, I don't so. know who the chemist is, but I feel like that there's some strong connection there. 
where he's coming and maybe an outside financier, he's offering the materials or, you know, even cinematographer or production designer, the materials that make it possible. Right. So, I mean, I think that, you know, all of these elements, I I think it all reads as this is a movie about movies. Um, And I like that read about it. And I think, because I think it also, it makes, I think it elevates, Inception from just being like, oh, what a cool story about a guy who wants to see his kids to this is a a filmmaker making a movie about movies without ever once, you know, saying I'm making a movie about movies. Yeah. So then is Maul like, you know, personal experience, personal trauma during the movie? (laughs) (laughs) Maul is the person Maul is the person who leaks the script online. (laughs) What is she doing here? (laughs) She showed up again. Ah, oh, damn it. Well, it's the person who ruins the movie <laughs> <laughs> by making it all about them. <laughs> I guess that makes sense. Um, or, you know, um, Christopher Nolan's like muse or personal personal trauma that he's trying to keep out of the story that he's telling, but sure. keeps making its way back in. Yeah. Something like that. Who knows? Who knows? But I think I, that's the thing about Inception. I think that. Inception is kind of what we would like from blockbusters on a regular basis, which is that we would like it in this perfect world if studios like, sure, here's a lot of money, go make something really unique and challenging, and hopefully it finds an audience. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen. And and Inception is such a unique beast that studios can be like, well, yeah, that's Christopher Nolan, and he can do whatever he wants, but the rest of you have to adapt. You know, if you want to make a blockbuster film, well, here's this Marvel character. <laughs> You know? Spielberg couldn't even get Lincoln made, which like feels like, uh, you know, why wouldn't you? Uh, Scorsese with Silence couldn't get that made. Um, you know, Nolan is the only. Scorsese one. couldn't get Irishman made. Irishman yeah. had to be made at Netflix because Paramount yeah. was like, no thanks, too expensive. And you know, on the one hand, these directors like Spielberg was like, yeah, I want to make Lincoln, but I want to make it my way, meaning mm-hmm. I want this massive cast and I want to recreate as much as possible, um, as opposed to kind of doing it on the cheap. But yeah, it is interesting that in the wake of Inception, we didn't really get an an influx of other filmmakers being given the same benefit of the doubt. Well, and and, and on the one hand, I get that. Like studios are, you know, we we can say like they're in the business of making art, but they're not. They're in the business of making money. And if you're an investor or not an investor, a shareholder, a studio head that wants to keep their job, the best thing you can do is to is to adapt something to make an adaptation because if an adaptation fails you're like well you know this had a fan base and they just didn't turn out and you know there's something you can point to but if you're like i took a bet on a movie about dreams and it didn't work out then you're in trouble yeah yeah i'm curious the the kind of parameters um i mean part of it is the the cast when you get someone like leonardo dicaprio that makes this movie a lot easier to um finance because Leo is going to guarantee you a certain number internationally um, when you put this movie out, especially given that it's an action movie. So that helps. Right. But uh, I was curious about the parameters of like how exactly this got greenlit at the, at the budget that I got greenlit. And I imagine part of it was if you make this, I'll be more likely to make another Batman for you. Yeah, no, to me, that was always the understanding. That was always the understanding, which is that, if you do this, I will make your third Batman film and it will, even if this movie tanks, you'll get your third Batman film and it will make a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Checks out. And again, like Nolan has been, I mean, we can joke about how like Warner brothers wants to be in the Nolan business. 
Nolan is a good bet for them. Nolan movies make a lot of money. Interstellar made a lot of money. Um, Dunkirk was a huge, was a hit in addition mm. to like racking up Oscar nominations. Yeah. A pretty huge so, hit, I think. And one of his first like summer, Oh uh, no, I guess the Batman movies are probably summer movies. Inception Batman was movies. a summer movie. Well, all, all except for Interstellar, almost all Nolan movies are summer movies. He has that, that, right. July, that July date locked down. Yeah. Except for Tenet. That's going to move. Except for Tenet, which is not coming out on July 17th. <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll look stupid in a co- in a few months, and like Tenant will open, and like these sparsely populated theaters, people will be like, "Ah, Tenant." <laughs> <laughs> It'll be the lowest box office of his career. Yeah, Whoop. that's that's what Christopher Nolan wants. <laughs> that's what Warner <laughs> Brothers wants: half-filled theaters. Yeah, yeah, that'll be fascinating. Um, but yeah, he can make anything he wants, really. He is probably the only the director who can. I mean, I guess now that Tarantino's on the market, but Tarantino's movies aren't terribly expensive, I don't think, by and large. I mean, they're expensive, but not like... They're not Nolan expensive. Yeah, they're not like two, three, four hundred million dollars. Right. Although I don't um, think movies are that high. But. Yeah. Well, I'll also say like Nolan is also has his sort of comfort zone, like... Even when he made Dunkirk, he's like, I can make this war movie PG-13. Yeah. And I can still make it as effective as an R-rated film, which I thought he wasn't going to be able to, and he did. So credit where it's due to making a bloodless war film. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I I feel like Nolan is now, I think he understands in terms of the business, he has a, a level of freedom that doesn't come around very often. So why would he burn his capital on making like a $20 million or whatever movie? Like he doesn't want to make indies right now. I think I can see one day he goes back to it, but like, I think he'll only go back to it when he has to, because even if you make a 20 million indie and it fails, that can have massive repercussions for your career. Just ask uh, Colin Trevorrow about the book of Henry. Yeah. <laughs> you mean Jurassic world dominion director, Colin Trevorrow. Yeah, I mean, he got to, he, he went back to it, but like that's the thing. Like he's like, ah, I'm flying eye off Jurassic World. Let me release this little movie, and then I'm gonna go make a Star Wars. Yeah, and then that did not work out too well. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, he has said, I think explicitly, Nolan has said that he's not interested in making smaller movies. He was kind of like, why would I do that? <laughs> so yeah, you which know. is a shame. I think you know, it's funny. I still think his best movie is Memento. But, you know, that's my favorite of his. Um, I need to revisit them. I've ranked them. It exists on Collider. I cannot tell you what I put at number one right now. For the I life thought you hadn't me. seen Following. I've seen Following. I watched Following to, to do the ranking. To ranking. do that list? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Following, following is good. good. Following is, yeah. as, a, as a first feature, Following is, is really strong. It's creepy. It's creepy. It's, you know, but I also interested, you know, what? I'm going to stop myself right here because now we're getting into like the big Nolan podcast. So you got to save that stuff for July. I'm sitting on, I'm sitting on Nolan gold right now. (laughs) Don't want to just give it away. (laughs) But it it is, I mean, I think the, uh, you know, is talking about inner inception in particular. He never went back. Like the prestige was not uh, an inexpensive film. But uh, after The Dark Knight and Inception back-to-back, he never made a movie for less than $100 million after that. And I don't think he will for a, a long while. And as we said, why should he? Inception is, you know, a massive turning point for him. Um, and also a film for which the I think a lot of people pegged that he'd be nominated for Best Director for the Oscars, and he didn't because the Oscars 
don't like Christopher Nolan for some reason. Uh, his first nomination come with, came with Dunkirk. Um, but it still won cinematography, I think visual effects. Didn't win editing. That was um, Social Network. It's a good year. It was a good year. Good year. Not as good as The King's Speech, the film we all sta- can't <laughs> stop talking about. Correct. But an all right year. Yeah. Yeah, we're just going to talk about movies that were released in 2009 and that were in the 2010 Oscar race from now on for the podcast. <laughs> so. Or 2010 and we're in the 2011 Oscar race. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, all right. Well, any, anything else to add about Inception or should we move on to Recently Watched? I mean, I just think it holds up pretty well. It's it, That's kind of what I found interesting uh, upon this most recent rewatch is some of these films that have um, – that are part of the lexicon that are kind of like a shared experience almost that everyone's like, Oh yeah. Like everyone's seen inception. Um, I was curious to see if I would just kind of like be looking at my phone or whatever, but like, no, it's just a really good movie. It's really well made. Um, And as I said, built to last, like it's just, uh, it's kind of timeless in, in, in its construction and the effects. Um, I do think it's interesting in Leo's career. We didn't really talk too much about Leo, I did want to touch on a little bit on, you know, he Leo is kind of eschewed like um, just really massive blockbusters, and so that that one I thought was uh, kind of an interesting point in his career because I, I believe after that he didn't do very many um, blockbusters. Like he kind of like made his money and got out and went and made money, made movies with uh, Scorsese. Am I wrong? Let me see. Well, I mean, there was Titanic, and then he kind of and then he did. He's co- sort of. He did the beach and then he sort of moved into doing Scorsese stuff. Yeah. But I'm talking about after inception. So it was kind of like he made inception, he made his bank and then he went off and made, you know, like Wolf of wall street and Revenant. And- well, and even then, like, I mean, shutter Island comes out in February of 2010. Yeah. So that was great. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the movie, do you know what the movie is? He made right after inception. Uh, Revolutionary road. Jay Edgar. Oof. You remember J. Edgar? Man, yeah, that was bad. That <laughs> With was bad. Army Hammer. That was, that was Clint Eastwood just looking at the Oscar race like, all right, sure, these guys. Bring them in. Bring them in. We'll do it in a take. <laughs> and uh, I'll go on my my merry way. But no, like after that, I mean, and Leo's career has been largely filmmaker driven for uh, a long time now. But after that, you can see, you know, he does J. Edgar, Django Unchained, Great Gatsby, Wolf of Wall Street, Revenant. But if you just look at him on paper, he's doing Clint Eastwood, Quentin Tarantino, Baz Luhrmann, Martin Scorsese, and Yuritu. Like, I think he's just looking at, you know, obviously the story is a big part of it. And as we see with Inception, like, uh, you know, I think that he has a... a pretty heavy hand in in the scripts that he's given and and kind of um crafting those stories himself and and fleshing out those characters himself. I know he certainly did on Django Unchained. Um and in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. Um but yeah, I think it's fascinating that he he makes Inception and I'm sure he was inundated with a ton of big blockbuster sci-fi projects after that. And he was like, "Yeah, I'm just going to keep working with cool filmmakers." And I think it's worked for him. I think, you know, he doesn't I mean, I guess one of the benefits of being the the lead actor in Titanic is that you get kind of that blockbuster cred. And I think he doesn't want to be tied. I think, you know, Inception is a good blockbuster vehicle for DiCaprio because it's not a film that's for franchises. Yeah, Christopher Nolan's not going to franchise it. Warner Brothers isn't going to franchise it without Christopher Nolan because they don't want to piss him off, you know? And so that's the end of it. So he gets to be in like a summer blockbuster, but it's kind of on his terms. 
Yeah, and he brings something to the table. Like you look at that role, and in lesser hands, or if it's his partner instead of his wife, you lose that kind of emotional connection. And even though I don't think the emotional connection entirely works, it's better than nothing. I think. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, hot take: Leo is very good. And <laughs> there you go. All right, let's move on to recently watched. What have you seen lately? Um, so I wanted to talk about two things. Uh, the first of which is Better Call Saul, which I believe I've already talked about this season on this podcast, but I finally caught up with the season on over the weekend. Um, and it's the, it's the best show on TV right now. And it's a better show than Breaking Bad. Um, the filmmaking in this show is just an entirely new level, um, in terms of shot construction and shot design, where they're placing the camera, um, but not just because like things look cool, all of these shot choices, I mean, this is a show about a lawyer and, uh, his girlfriend, and sometimes there's a cartel involved and it's all about character and it's all about emotion and some shots just kind of break your heart. But I think the thing that unlocked better call Saul for me this season, and, you know, I, I've, I've loved it, uh, throughout its entire run, but what really came into view this season, especially as we head towards next season will be the final season of the show is that this is a tragedy and breaking bad, I think undeniably is one of the best TV shows ever made, but, and I haven't rewatched breaking bad. Um, I think I probably will before the next season of better call Saul, but my recollection of it is, is as it goes on, you like Walter white less and less. And that's kind of the point because Walt becomes a monster. Um, and by the end, you're not, rooting for walt at all really and you really don't care about um him i mean you care about the people around him and you're interested to find out what happens to him but he's a monster jimmy mcgill and saul goodman knowing what we know about the road that he goes down and watching him in better call saul which is a prequel series um trying so hard to be a good person and trying so hard to do the right thing. And especially this relationship with Kim and knowing where he ends up is just tragic. It's, it's pure tragedy. And the way that they're threading the story, I think is just brilliant. Um, and I don't know, that show breaks my heart. Uh, and it's just so well-made. It's the same crew as breaking bad. So they've just been honing their craft year after year. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, this season is spectacular. We're recording this podcast on Monday. The season finale is tonight. So um, I'm not talking about anything that happens in that because I haven't seen it. But um, yeah, if you haven't seen Better Call Saul or if you were wary of it, much like Bring Bad, it's one of those shows that gets better as as it goes on. Not that it's ever bad, um, but I would highly suggest um, checking that one out because that's, you know, I don't know. Rewatching that this weekend, I, I just was really moved by it. So that's a good one. So right. watch Better Call Saul. Um, and then the other thing I watched this weekend was uh, Mother, not the Darren Aronofsky film, but uh, the Bong Joon-ho film, which uh, I had not seen. Uh, and they put a number of Bong Joon-ho's films up on Hulu along with Parasite. Um, and I think Memories of Murder is on there as well, which is my favorite. I don't think Memories of Murder is on there. Oh, is it not? Because oh. Neon has the rights for it right now, and they want to do a theatrical re-release. Oh, interesting. Um, and that's getting a criterion as well. Yes. And that one is fantastic but mother is on hulu because that's how i watched it uh and it is well worth watching it's hard to describe much like his films it's kind of tonally a lot of different things but kind of just on a base level um it's about a mother who's trying to exonerate her son for murder um and that's just kind of all you need to know about it but 
uh, for me, I mean, it's it's a story about regret and a story about guilt, um, a story about class, as all of Bong Joon-ho's films are. Um, and Kim Hee-ja, I think is how you pronounce her name, uh, is spectacular as the the mother uh, in the film. Um, and I don't know, it just it goes to surprising places. It's a little off kilter, a little strange, but I think that's part of the appeal of Bong's films um, and just masterfully constructed um, from, you know, uh, a shot design level and, uh, you know, what the camera is showing, what the camera is allowing you to see. Um, but that was one of the few that I hadn't seen of his yet. And I knew that people had been raving about it and it, it absolutely lives up to the hype. So I would suggest, highly suggest checking out Mother on Hulu. Yeah, I'm, I am planning to do that. <laughs> um, for me, I watched, uh, I was kind of, one of my blind spots was the films of uh, director Alan J. Pakula, who his biggest film is probably All the President's Men, uh, followed by Sophie's Choice. But his he has sort of a, a paranoia trilogy, which is Clute, The Parallax View, and All the President's Men. So I decided to watch Clute, which is on Criterion Channel, and then Parallax View, which is on HBO Now. Um, and Clute is fantastic. Clute is, uh, the story is that Jane Fonda plays this um, call girl named Bree Daniels, and uh, she is associated with this John who is gone missing. And the John was a friend of uh, John Clute, who's played by Donald Sutherland, and he's going to go look for his friend. And so he's basically asking this call girl, who is also an aspiring actress, you know, what she knew. Um, and even though the film is called Clute, it's really about Brie Daniels. That's the character that the film is about. And it's a really fascinating look about feminine agency and like control and power. And uh, the cinematography by Gordon Willis is outstanding. Like the way he uses darkness in these movies and just like these little bits of light is so, so good. Uh, but it's it's Jane Fonda's performance that anchors this entire thing. She won the Oscar for it. Uh, and the film as a whole was just, uh, terrific. I really like it does put you in that paranoid space. Um, but it kind of upends your expectations about what kind of movie you're watching, uh, while really being one of the first films, I think, especially in the new Hollywood wave to put, uh, a female character's inner life front and center, uh, especially in a profession that is usually reserved for like, Oh, she's the hooker with a heart of gold or some white knight's going to come save her. And, and Clute doesn't play by those rules. Uh, and so that one is is very much worth checking out. It'll leave Criterion at the end of this month. So if you have Criterion Channel, I highly recommend checking out Clue. Parallax View, not as good. Uh, Parallax <laughs> View is okay. Uh, basically, Parallax View feels like a response to, hey, a lot of people sure are getting assassinated lately in our culture, <laughs> or there have been assassination attempts. That seems weird. What if there was a business that, like a shadowy underground force that was kind of running all these assassinations. And so uh, Warren Beatty is this reporter for this, you know, this newspaper in Oregon. Like it's not a big newspaper, but he's kind of a tenacious reporter and he goes digging for like, what is how, what, what's happening with these assassinations? You know, what, what's the story behind them? There's not much of a character there. He's kind of a cipher, kind of an everyman. Beatty doesn't seem too emotional. He didn't seem to find an emotional hook for the character so he just kind of does things the film is really more about the uneasiness about there's a machine that you don't see 
that moves the wheels of power along and you have no control over it. And I think that's where the parallax view is at its most uh, powerful uh, and the most compelling is that the notion of there's a machine and at best you're gonna see how the cogs work and oh, by the way, you're also a cog in this machine. Um, but it doesn't have the same, it doesn't have the same character stakes that Clute or that Clute does. And then if you compare it to All the President's Men, All the President's Men is just really good in like that William Goldman script is just fantastic. So it's really good at importing information. It's just a good journalism story. And Parallax View kind of fails both as a character story and a journalism story, but it kind of works as like a snapshot of where the country was in 1974. Um, so that's how that's, that's how the parallax view works. <laughs> Is it very uh, similar to Captain America, the winter soldier? Yes. I, that's, I was getting very annoyed when I was watching Clute and parallax <laughs> view to people like, like the winter soldier is really a seventies conspiracy thriller. And it's like, no, it's not. And you haven't seen those movies. <laughs> it's a seventies thriller conspiracy thriller. If Captain America dies at the end, that's how it's a seventies conspiracy thriller. What if fun. it has a bummer ending of some sort. Crossbones just cuts his head off. Yeah, exactly. Um, but they're both good films, and I think Pacula is kind of an underrated director um, who deserves more uh, more attention, especially when you've got you know to 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 come out with Clute and All the President's Men, you know, in the same decade, two classics like that. I think it's worth uh, paying attention to. Nice. Yeah, I have not seen Clute. Um, I need to. Um, all right. Well, thank you all so much for listening. So usually we put out a poll about next week's film, but we've just decided we're going to talk about Minority Report. It came in second place in our last poll, and uh, we really want to talk about it because I think it's a Spielberg film that is worthy of uh, an in-depth discussion, uh, especially uh, I, certainly for me. I, this recent viewing kind of made me change my entire opinion on it. It is streaming on Netflix, so go watch Minority Report. Uh, and that's what we'll be talking about on next week's episode. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next week.